Okay, so uh, last week we started a two-part little message um, called A Discipler Is, dot, 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 right? A, a Discipler Is, and we've got a ton to cover today, so I'm just going to pretty much dive right into the passage, not much of an intro. Uh, so if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Thessalonians, no surprise there, right? Open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we will be starting in verse Three, and we're going to hit the whole rest of the chapter. So that's why I said we got a lot to go. So far we covered um, that a discipler is three things. A discipler is eager, like eager for relationship, uh, eager to be in relationship with others. A discipler is proud, and that's not like self-pride, right? That's being proud for the achievements of others. That's telling uh, one another that we are... Um, happy and, and proud and joyful of them. And then the last one was a discipler is committed. Committed. And, and we drew that from uh, the verses right at the beginning of chapter 3 because Paul sends Timothy to aid in the Thessalonians' discipleship as a way of making sure they're being discipled whether he's there or not. Right? And we talked about how like, that shows commitment. Commitment that somebody is going to be discipled uh, whether or not you are the one actually doing it. And it's that right there that sort of leads us into where we are now. So in verse 3, it starts with sort of the end of the sentence, that, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. And that's, he was giving his motivation for why he was sending Timothy. That's the beginning of verse 3, and let me read the rest of it. We're going to go 3 through 5 for this first point. Paul says, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as, it has, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And the point I want to take from tonight, there's a lot of points we could take, but the one I want to draw tonight is a discipler is spiritual. A discipler is spiritual. And what I mean by that is that they take the spiritual side of things seriously. I'm not just saying like spiritual, like some emotive thing. I mean that they truly consider the spiritual side of things, the spiritual consequences to things. Like they, they don't write them off. They don't pretend that they don't exist. They acknowledge the seriousness of it, like Paul does here in, in 3 through 5. Paul makes it really clear, like I just read, that he understands what the effects of persecution could be on somebody. That's his concern. That, that's why he wanted to send Timothy to them, because he understands what could happen to somebody that's enduring all of that persecution, somebody that's enduring all of that affliction. And if he didn't understand it, he wouldn't have said that his worry was that they would be tempted by the tempter. But he did. That's what he said. That His fear was that they would be tempted by the tempter. And last week, I told you that we were going to talk about this. I sort of left you last week with a bit of a cliffhanger, with something to sort of struggle with, to, to wrestle with. And we're, we're going to dive into it right now. And I'm going to give you a heads up. Um, like I said, I'm going to be sticking to my notes pretty clearly and reading them 
because this is a this is a sticky subject, right? This is something that like I was telling the leaders earlier, like this is the razor's edge, razor's edge of preaching, right? Because you don't want to go one way or the other per se, um, unless scripture goes that way. So, um, but we are going to be talking about uh, the spiritual consequences of failing to disciple somebody. So, let's start with acknowledging the immediate truth that we just saw in this passage. What we saw here is that Paul feared that the Thessalonians would be tempted and that all the work that he had done to preach the gospel would result in nothing. That's why he said that his worry was that his labor would be in vain. In fact, just a few verses later, which we're going to get to, we see that this is most certainly what Paul was concerned about, because what does he do? He, he praises them for the fact that they're standing fast in the Lord. So Paul truly did have a concern in his heart for them, that a lack of discipleship and absence between him and them, like him not being able to be with them, would cause them not to be able to stand fast in the Lord. And we'll get into that definition a little bit, but essentially... It would cause them to fall away or to walk away from their faith. So what does Paul mean exactly when he says standing fast or, or the opposite? What, is it, what does he mean when he's talking about that? Well, based on this passage, based on the context Paul is using, based on the Greek words that Paul chooses to write and chooses to use here, and based on Paul's theology, like that we see in the Corinthians, like anytime we read through those letters, like based on all those things, uh, with confidence we can say Paul is fearing that their faith in Christ would be put out before it came to fruition. That is Paul's concern. That is his fear. He's fearing that in their youthfulness, in their infancy of coming to know Christ, that Satan will come, he will tempt them, and they will be led away. Paul sincerely believes here that he can help stop that. He sincerely believes that there is a spiritual battle that is being fought, and it is him, essentially God, and the discipleship happening versus what Satan wants to do. That's the battle, what God wants to do in their life versus what Satan would love to do in their life. Now I need to be clear it's not like Paul is worrying that, like, the Thessalonians had salvation and then all of a sudden didn't have it. Like, that, that's not what I, I'm getting at. But rather, his fear is that their, um, their faith, their true belief in Christ, would be proven as not because they wouldn't be persevering through temptation. You see, like, true belief in Jesus, true belief in Christ, it's marked by two things. It's marked by repentance. When we come to Christ, everyday sense, turning from our sin, but it's also marked with perseverance. And the Apostle John is like, I think personally, the Apostle John is like the best one to sort of look at what that means. What it means for there to be like the repentance, but also the perseverance. So you guys know the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You guys see it on signs all the time. Like you see it you know, in football games. People write it on their little, what are these things called? The eye black? Oh, that's, that's simple, man. Okay, now I feel stupid. So they write it on their eye black, right? Um, and you see it all over the place. And why? It's because it is the most concise summary of what the gospel is is and when we're leading people to belief we're leading them to the thought whoever believes in christ shall have eternal life it's pretty clear in there and the apostle john wrote it to be that clear but also in first john written by the same guy first john 2 3 and 4 he says this and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments for whoever says i know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him whoever doesn't keep christ's commandments the truth is not in them so your belief in christ is what saves you your belief in christ is what saves you but that salvation is only proven to be authentic that salvation is only proven to be true in your life if you persevere through the temptations if you fight the sin if you keep the commandments of the lord that perseverance is what proves that you are saved it is not what saves you but it is the proof that you are saved it's it's a both and situation like, and it, it's terribly difficult to wrap our mind around, like, all the details. But you know what? The, the Lord doesn't ask us to understand all that he does and all that he says. In fact, like in Isaiah, like the Lord says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Like, there is going to be times when we can't fully comprehend um, all the ways that that plays out, all right? But our job is to listen to scripture and what it says and act accordingly. So I've got this little, little statement that I just have typed up. It's because I want to be very clear about what I'm saying here. Uh, the scripture says that your belief in Christ as your savior is what saves you. Scripture also says that those who are truly saved will persevere through temptation. And Paul shows in scripture that we have a role to play in that perseverance. Like we have a role to play in, in others persevering. And to some extent, to some extent, not fully and not mostly, but at least to some extent, we are held responsible for the discipling of others. We are spiritually held responsible for how others turn out. We are held responsible for how others persevere. Like I said, not fully, probably not even mostly, but there is a realm in which we are held accountable. And spots in scripture like Romans 2 and Revelation 2 both say and both show us that Jesus will most certainly judge us according to those works. There's no getting around it. It doesn't sound great, and it's hard to sort of comprehend that God saves people, and he chooses who's saved, and 
those that fall away, it's ultimately on them and God's plan. But at some point, we're also going along that as well. And we are held responsible for them falling away. Like, held responsible for what we chose not to do, what we chose to disobey in, because we are called to disciple, and to not disciple is disobedience. So we're not responsible for actually saving the soul of another person. Like I said, only Christ can do that. Because God, God isn't just like, oh, well, Cody witnessed to you, so I guess I'll have to let you into heaven now, right? Like, oh, man, you're right. Like, now that you're saved, I guess I'll just let you in. Like, there is absolutely no surprise to God on who gets saved. There is no surprise to him that somebody would come to know him. Yet, somehow, we are most certainly involved in the process of, help, of helping someone work out their faith. We are most certainly responsible for doing whatever we can to fight the attacks of Satan on those that we disciple. And so when I, circling back around now, when I say that a discipler is spiritual, I mean that a discipler takes that seriously. A discipler takes seriously the fact that there are spiritual consequences if you choose to abandon discipleship. If you choose to disobey Christ when he says to go and make disciples, then the cost is a spiritual cost. People's lives are affected by your lack of discipleship. And oftentimes, we don't give enough thought to that. Oftentimes, we are far more comfortable to just sit back, especially in our type of church, we're a more reformed church. It's so easy to just sit back and think, God's got this. It's between God and them if they're saved. It's, it's between God and just them without realizing and acknowledging that God's version of got it is to send you. God's version of bringing people to himself is to use the church to do that, to communicate the truth to others and to work out the gospel in people's lives. Like God's version of working in somebody's life is to send those that do the working to them. I don't know why. I don't know how sometimes. But God most certainly is clear that the church is his instrument to be used. It's God's method of revealing himself. And if you choose to disobey, there's a price that will be paid. There are people that will give in to temptation. There are people that will stray away from their faith. And while you may not be the reason that they give in to temptation, while you may not be the reason that they stray away from their faith, you can be a contributing factor to it. And I think that that should sober us. I think that should cause us to lose some sleep. I think if we are in a spot in our lives where we are not discipling others, and, and when I say discipleship, every week I'm pounding this in, right? When I say discipleship, I'm talking about one-on-one, -on -one, 
I'm talking about being in groups like this. I'm talking about going to like church and being part of the larger discipleship that's happening and, and small groups and, and mentor-mentee, like all of these things that fall under the relationship of living life with one another and living life and discussing God and being with God in relationship with one another, like all those things are discipleship, right? And if we don't actually take those things seriously and invest in the discipleship of one another and these consequences are happening, I pray that causes you to lose sleep. I pray that you fear what could be going on because you are choosing to disobey and not aid in the discipleship of others. And I pray that if you don't feel that way, that you would pray and ask to feel that way. That you would pray and ask the Lord to help you and teach you I want us to be a group that does that. I'll get more into that later. But I do want to encourage you to like, reach out to your leaders. Right? I say that most weekends too. Weekends? Thursdays? I say that most Thursdays. It's not a weekend. feels like a weekend. Um, that reach out to those that you need to talk to. Right? Leaders, people in your group. If you need to talk, let's figure this out. So there's a lot of nuance in that, guys. There's a lot of things. I wish I could be... Uh, I wish I could spend all the time on this. I wish I could show um, more gentleness in this. I wish I could show you all these different things. I can't. I don't have enough time. I, I got to keep on moving. We got a lot of scripture to head through, but it's a good start for us to talk about. So on to the next one. Um, a discipler is loved. A discipler is spiritual and a discipler is loved. And this is taken from verse six, if you get your eyes on it. It says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. I'm going to stop there because this one's a pretty simple point. This one's a pretty simple and it's a quick point, right? Paul has a thermometer that he uses to gauge his, his effectiveness as a discipler. Paul has a way of particularly gauging his, gauging his effectiveness with the Thessalonians. And that is to see how they felt about him. Because I think all of you can agree with this, especially in the political climate we're finding ourselves in right now. People receive what they want and they reject what they don't. People receive what they like and people reject what they don't like. That's to be true. And we see it especially right now, all the time. I don't like this, I'll reject it. That's what literally what they're calling cancel culture right now, right? This insulted me, this irritated me, I'm just going to get rid of this out of my life. It was happening back then too. And Paul knew that. And Paul was gauging how they felt about him. Not because he was concerned with how they felt about him. Not because he wanted to please them. Not because he wanted to deceive them and, and make them think that he was just this awesome person. No, Paul was comfortable with who he was. But rather, he was gauging their feelings towards him because it said something about them. It didn't say something about who he was being. How they felt about him said something about them. It helped him determine if they were being fertile ground, 
if they were being receptive to the gospel, if they were being receptive to the things of God. Like, it pleased Paul to know that they loved him and that they respected him and that they desired to see him. Like, those things made him happy. Why? Why did those make Paul happy? It's because he was doing God's work. He was God's messenger. He was working on behalf of God in their lives, and their acceptance of him is their acceptance of what God had for them. They were synonymous. Paul was so about the work of God that he couldn't be separated from it, right? To accept Paul's words in your life as a discipler was to accept God's truth in your life. So this, one, this one's easy, an easy point, right? A disciples love, but it requires a prerequisite in your life. Like, do the people you are discipling love and respect you? Right? That's, that's the easy part, like, to gauge. Do the people in your life love and respect you? But the prerequisite is that uh, you actually have to be representing God's truth and not just form of yourself trying to please them, not just some form of yourself trying to make sure that you look good in their eyes, right? We, we talked about this a lot when it came to being deceptive when preaching the gospel to somebody. So the prerequisite is that you are actually honestly there to do God's work in their life and to be in godly relationship. And that allows you to have the easy gauge of how they're receiving it. So a discipler is loved. That's the gauge that you want to see. Next one, a discipler is also invested. A discipler is also invested. We see this, uh, verse 7, 8, and 9. Paul says, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. So what's going on in Paul, it, it's beyond just caring. It's, it's beyond the fact that he just cares for them. And it's even more beyond the fact that he's burdened for them. We've talked in the previous weeks about being burdened for one another, being burdened for those and, and loving them. We've, we've hit that point already. But Paul is driving the stake even further in this passage now. Because what he's showing is an investment in their life. How many of you have uh, seen Shark Tank? Or at least know what Shark Tank is? Give me an idea. Alright, so you guys at least know what I'm about to talk about. So, you know Shark Tank. A guy comes, or a girl, presents an idea. And the sharks all debate and discuss if they want to be a part of whatever they happen to be presenting. And they take it seriously. And why do they take it seriously? It's because the money that they're about to give this business isn't just money, it represents them. And if they invest in this business, if that business fails, they fail. And if that business succeeds, they succeed. They're not just giving advice. They're actually investing themselves into something and seeing the result come out. They're investing their name, their reputation. They're investing part of their finances. Every single one of those things is at stake for every single time that they say yes. 
And what Paul is doing here is modeling the discipleship version of that. He tells the Thessalonians right there in verse 8 that if they are standing fast in the Lord, he can live. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What does the opposite of that imply? That if they aren't standing fast in the Lord, he's dead. Now, I don't think that means Paul will physically die if they are not standing fast in the Lord, if they aren't continuing in him, if they're not staying strong and persevering. But what he's definitely saying is it'll feel like death to him. Because Paul is so invested in the Thessalonians that part of him lives with them. And guys, that's, that's the messy part of discipleship. That's the part that causes you to lose nights of sleep sometimes with somebody. That's the part that causes you to stop eating for a while because you're so nervous or anxious for somebody. Uh, if you're me, it's the opposite, right? Like, I get so anxious and nervous, I start eating a lot. I, like, I nervous eat. But, like, that's the part of discipleship that begins to affect you that way. Because you are affected by what the people you are discipling are affected by. It's the part of discipleship that can break your heart. To, to, like, to not see someone that you're pouring into succeed, it's heartbreaking. It'd be like if we spent four years like this with each other every single night, just, just you guys and me. If it was just us and me. You don't think it would break our hearts to see each other fail after four years? It most certainly would. But also, it makes your heart sore when they succeed. To watch somebody that you've poured into, whether it be like discipler to disciple, mentor, mentee, or like peer to peer, like to watch somebody actually succeed, it brings like a fulfillment in the Lord that it can't really be explained. And, and Paul right here is doing, doing the best that he can to explain that feeling. If you stand fast in the Lord, I live. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. I'm living if you're doing good with Jesus. That is a super dramatic term to use in relationship with somebody. But, but Paul uses that. And discipleship requires investment. And that's for our group. That's not just going to happen in the 30 minutes that we're about to spend after the message. That's not just going to happen if you guys have some guided conversation based on the message that I just gave. And so I did want to take this time and encourage you as a group and as groups within groups and things like that, like spend time with each other outside of this. Spend time with each other, getting to know each other. Like, it would be awesome to have you guys getting dinner beforehand, before you guys even come here. Or after this, you go get, you know, pie or B-dubs or something like that. Like, just being together and investing in one another's lives. That's the only way true discipleship is going to happen in this group. Because we actually have to spend time with each other, not through guided conversation like we're currently doing. I mean, there's a place for it, which is why we're doing it, right? There's a place for what we're doing right now. But it's not the ultimate goal. It's just supposed to help in the ultimate goal. So live life with one, e one another because every chance you have for discipleship is a chance for investment. 
And true discipleship happens only with true investment. You have to be invested in the life of somebody else. And so go ahead and begin right now just thinking who are the people right now you are invested in. Whether it be somebody that you're pointing into one-on-one, it be in a group, it be in your friends, it be in your family. Like, go ahead and start thinking about those. We're going to come back to that in just a minute and spend, spend a moment with them. But I want you to think about that in a few different contexts. I want you to think about what am I doing right now with somebody individually in which I am investing in them. And I am invested in them. If they fail, I fail. If they succeed, I succeed. Take that to the next step. What are you doing in a group like this? Like when you get together, like girls, when you sit down in your groups or two, I can't remember how many you guys are in right now, and guys, when we sit down in ours, like what are you doing to invest in that moment in those around you? Take it larger, your schools. Take it larger when you come to church. What are you doing even in that 50 minutes to an hour and a half or two hours, however long the church service you go to is, what are you doing in that time to invest in those around you, to invest in the pastor preaching to you? It's a two-way, that's a two-way relationship. To invest in those that are coming to church, maybe it's by serving, right? There's so many different ways that we can be doing it, but I want to start shaping your mind around that because we're going to end with it when we end with these last few verses here. And the last few verses lead us to the point that a discipler is prayerful. Prayerful. Almost sounded like I said powerful. Prayerful. Prayerful. Discipler is prayerful. This comes from verses 10 to 13. I mean, Paul's been loving the Thessalonians, right? It's like, if if you're standing fast in the Lord, like, I live, I'm so joyful, it makes me so happy that you want to see me because I so badly want to see you. Like, he's saying all these things to them. And in verse 10, he says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul says to them, I pray for you constantly as we pray for you. And then he prays for him, right there. Verse 9 and 10, talking about thanksgiving that he gives to God for them, and then actually shows them the thanksgiving that he gives and prays for them as well in verse 11 to 13. And just to back up my points, like what is he praying for? He's praying that they'll continue to stand fast in the Lord. He's praying that they will persevere through temptation. He's praying that the Lord will establish them and make them blameless and holy and all of those things that I talked about sort of define whether or not you're saved by revealing if you are saved. So here's what I want to do. I told you guys think about all those things, right? Think about those people in those groups. We're going to spend, I'm going to put five minutes on a clock, right? It's going to be silent. There's no music playing. 
So just get over it now because it's going to be silent, all right? We're going to spend five minutes, and I want you, just you, we're not breaking in groups or anything, to think through people in each one of those realms that I talked about, one-on-one, smaller group, bigger group, bigger group, biggest group, family, whatever those may be. I want you thinking about how you can be investing in them by praying for them. Praying, Lord, show me how I can be more invested in discipling them. And then I would love it if you pray this prayer over them. Like my marriage, Brittany and I. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to say like, Lord, may you, my God and Father and Jesus, direct Brittany's way to you. May you make her way to increase and abound in love for those around her. May you establish her heart blameless and holy before God and Father at the coming of Jesus. Like, pray that for those people. 